Hi, this is Elise in 2019. I have a bit of a cold, so I sound like this. Just a short note before we start. This episode was originally released in 2011, years before the author Luis Katigbak passed away in 2016. I've only spoken in person to Luis once, and that was when I jumped up the courage to introduce myself to him after a readers' convention where I saw him talk. A few years after that, I emailed him to ask permission to use Kara's place on the podcast, and he said yes. Luis told me he wrote the story when he was younger, around 19 or 20 years old. In 2011, when he was much older, he said, and I quote, "If I happen to reread it, I feel a mixture of affection, nostalgia, mild embarrassment, and a small measure of pride. I wouldn't write it the same way now." But I'm glad I wrote it then. Thank you for your stories, Louise. You are in our thoughts. And now, on with the podcast. This is Pakinggan Pilipinas. I'm Elise Ponsalan, your fiction DJ. When you're working hard for the money, trying your darndest to get food on the table, get debts paid, get your children to school, get your boss to like you, get your downlines to follow you, and still have enough energy and time to just stagger to the nearest chair and catch your breath. You think, you think life was easier then, in school, when there were no complications. Just going to class every day, just making sure you passed, or making sure the person you liked in the ES1 class liked you back. Or acknowledge your existence at the very least. You think life was easier then, was a breeze, but only if you're lucky. This month's story is a preview into college life for some of you, and somewhat a flashback for some of us. Caris Places by Luis Catigbac, narrated for us by another writer, Christine Lau. And we have a treat for you if you stick with us till the end of this podcast. Because Tin and I will have a little chat about the story. Kara's Place by Luis Joaquin M. Katigba I'm pretty sure there are only two rats. I've seen both so often that I can tell them apart now. And ever since I gave them names, I've started feeling something almost like affection for them. I mean, I don't feed them anything. They manage to seal quite enough of my food, thank you. But at least I don't freak out anymore when they pop up, and I don't reach for the nearest blunt object. I saw Ludlum. He's the smaller, darker one. So I'm this morning, just behind the dish rack. And Le Carre paid me a visit as I was eating lunch. Guess that's how I think of them now. They're visitors. And God knows, I don't get many of those here in Cruz Naligas. Well, there's Eric, of course. It's kind of funny. We've known each other for years. Went to the same high school and all. And we've never really been more than buddies. But nowadays, I think he's gotten kind of sweet on me. Why else would he squeeze his civic into the narrow streets of Cruz Naligas? Why else would he hang out in this lousy place? I mean, to call my room makeshift would be an act of kindness. It doesn't seem constructed so much as slapped together. That it's an architectural afterthought is proven by a window set in its back wall. A grimy screen covers said window, and its wooden jalousies have now been nailed shut. But anyone can see that it once served as the house's front window. Guess the owners needed some extra money, 
looked at the square meter or so of extra space in front of their house, and decided to cobble together a room for some gullible student, i.e. me, to rent. The right wall was made out of hollow blocks, up to a point that is. From around waist height upwards, it's just chicken wire supported by wooden framework. This fact is just barely disguised by the heavy yellow curtains that hang down from the roof. The left wall is made of wood, but it's also unfortunately a shared wall. Half of it belongs to the people next door. I can hear them arguing from here. I don't really mind all that, though. I've rented worse places. I spend most of my time asleep anyway, so I don't give a damn about the interior design or lack thereof. The noise I can tune out after a while. It just becomes like a background hiss, like the white noise an off-duty TV makes when it's way past midnight and you're nodding off on the couch. The thing that bugs me, though, is when I have to go to the main house to use the bathroom. Of course I know enough never to step out of the bathroom wearing just a towel or even a bathrobe. But for my landlord's useless son, it's apparently a turn-on just to see me in shorts and slippers. I have to pass through the kitchen to get to the CR, and if he happens to be there, I'll feel his gaze on me traveling the length of my body up and down. I don't even have to glance at him to know this. He's not exactly subtle about it. Get a job, I want to tell him. Get a goddamn life. A knock sounds on my door. My door is made of cheap lawanit, half-heartedly reinforced by some galvanized iron. Somehow, any sounds produced by striking it don't sound quite real. And so I wait until I hear the knock a second, a third time, before I get up to answer. Who is it? I call. Just me, a familiar voice replies. Eric? Yeah. I push my monoblock chair aside to clear the way to my so-called closet. The chair makes an irritating, scraping sound. Hold on, I say as I open the closet door and tug at one of the drawers. Just give me a minute or two to make myself decent. Okay, he says as I rummage for a bra. My white t-shirt is pretty flimsy, and there are limits to my bohemianism. I find one, snap it on, then get up and open the door. Hi, Kara, he says with a big grin and a small hand wave, as though I were several meters away. The goof. Hey, Eric, I smile. Come in. I point at the chair. Sit down, feel at home. He sits, quite happily obedient, and I can't help trusty canine comparisons from springing to my mind. I know, I know. I can be so mean. And to think Eric's one of those rare persons I actually like. I sit down on my bed. It's an old army-issue steel number whose aged springs creak whenever I shift my weight. So, how are your classes? Eric asks, plunging straight away into the small talk. A new semester has just begun, our second year in the university. And for the first time in a long while, I don't feel the usual surge of enthusiasm for a new grading period. That wave of self-delusion that has me telling myself, this time, I'm going to work my butt off. This time, I'm getting high grades in everything. I just feel kind of blah about it all. My classes? I say. They'd be okay if they didn't interfere with my sleep so much. Eric laughs, and then his face turns serious and he says, Kara, 
Can I talk to you about something that's been bothering me a little? I say, sure, go ahead. Eric starts talking about this quartet of sweaty, sandal-clad men who don't seem to do anything except hang out at the Sari Sari store down the street. He says that, just now, when he got out of his car and glanced at them, he noticed that they were drunk. He goes on about how they could be dangerous, about how one of these nights when I'm going home, you know, something could happen. That I should let him fetch me from my last class every day. It's no big deal. I feel like telling him that I'm pretty sure they're all right, that they seem nice enough, that all they ever do when they're drunk is sing. Badly. But I know he'll just say I'm being uncharacteristically naive. I also feel like asking, Hey, wait. What are we anyway? What's this fetch-me-everyday business? Did I miss something? Aren't we getting a little bit ahead of ourselves? But sometimes it's just easier to let awkward questions simmer in the false hope that they'll evaporate completely. So instead, I stare absent-mindedly at my lumpy mattress. It's covered with a shabby white bedsheet decorated with little orange flowers. Then, just as Eric finishes up his speech, there's a tap on the roof, and then another, and another. We look up. It's beginning to rain. We sit there for a while, listening to the taps coming faster, stronger, listening to the rain gathering strength, and soon it sounds like the entire Filipiniana dance group on steroids is performing on the roof. Ha, never fails. Just had the car washed. Eric shakes his head, and then a slow grin spreads across his face. You remember Joanne's birthday in senior year? How could I forget? Joanne was one of only a handful of people in our batch who had a car, and she was the only one who had a new car, a brand spanking new Galant, as opposed to the second-hand slabs of rust that normally sputtered around the parking lot. And so... On her birthday, the barcada decided to slather gunk all over her car as a surprise. The plan was that we would bring cans of shaving cream, spray their contents all over the car's surface, put some cherries on the hood, and then hide. When Joanne returned to the parking lot, we would savor our view of her stunned expression, and then suddenly leap out of the hedges, scream surprise, and then cheerfully wipe off all the gunk. The problem was... We didn't know that the shaving cream would eat right through the car's paint job. We spent the next few months pooling our allowances to pay for the repair work. Eric and I are laughing as we tell each other the story again. And then, I say gasping, and then there was that time when we were sophomores and it was raining like a bastard, raining so hard they canceled classes. And then Rachel announced that she wanted to watch a movie. Eric is nodding his head vigorously. He finishes the story for me. Yeah, and we told her she was nuts, but somehow she commandeered the assistant director's official transport, and we got a free ride to the mall. Story follows familiar story. Do you remember that time in the biology lab when... And how about that day at the fair? We've forgotten the room, the ratty yellow curtains, the question of us. For the moment, we're somewhere else, safe from decisions and possibilities and consequences. We're in a shared area of memory, a kind of amusement park of the heart, where nothing goes awry, 
unless it's for our enjoyment. Her days past can be repainted in colors bright as happiness. Sometimes I think that's what I really like about Eric, that we can talk about all that, all the stuff that happened to us in high school. Well, Eric concludes, those were the days. I make a derisive sound, something that's between a laugh and a snort. I don't know why. Is it because of the cliché? The fact that those words sound kind of stupid, coming from someone who's not even 20? Or maybe it's because his careless, tossed-off statement has scared me a little. What if those really were the days? Eric senses my unease and steers the conversation back into safe waters. So, what are you taking this sem? He asks. I start rattling off my subjects. Communication 2, social science, etc., etc., and math 17. Hey, he says, frowning. Didn't you take that last sem? Yes, I say. So, what's the deal? He has a genuinely puzzled expression on his face. I wonder how I'm going to answer him. Eric knows me well enough to realize that there's no way in hell I could have failed Math 17. I failed it, I say. No way. It's true. I point at the containers arrayed by the kitchen sink. Hey, you want something to drink? Iced tea? Coffee? Some Dom Perignon, perhaps? No, no. I'm okay. He brushes off my attempt to change the topic with the determination of someone whose mind tends to run on a single track. How could you fail, Math? I mean, you were the best in high school. Everyone copied assignments off you. Heck, you probably solve calculus problems in your sleep. I shrug, look away from him. I suddenly realize that I'm going to give him an explanation, and I don't want to be looking at him when I do. I pick up my newsprint edition of the Math 17 textbook. Flip it open to a random page. A mass of graphs, symbols, and equations unfurls. I recognize this chapter and some of the problems listed. Well, I start. Well, you know how in math, attendance doesn't mean anything? He frowns. I mean, that's what all the other math majors told me. All the teachers care about is if you're good. Some of them don't even bother to check who's absent or present. All that matters is that you pass the exams. Eric's still frowning. I begin to worry that he might crease his forehead permanently. So, my Math 17 class was at 7 in the morning. Too early for me. I cut class. A lot. By the end of the sem, I was just showing up for the exams. And let me tell you, I aced those exams. I'm still looking at the open page. With my index finger, I trace an arc of plotted points on one of the graphs. And then, just after the finals, my teacher asks me to see him in his office. I pause. I take a slow, deep breath. I go there. He all smiles. Come in, come in, he says. He sits down points to a chair just opposite him, tells me to sit down. I do. He starts by saying that I didn't show up for classes enough, that I'm in trouble, 
because I went over the maximum number of absences. I'm listening, and I don't know what to say in my defense. Suddenly, his hand's resting on my thigh, and he's telling me that actually, the attendance really won't be a problem as long as I'm not averse to the idea of having a little fun. Eric is staring at me, like he can't understand, much less believe what I'm saying. Like all he's doing is watching my lips move. I left, of course, I said. And when I got my class card, there was a big fat failing grade on it. Eric blurts out, Why didn't you tell me? And then, after fearing the honest answer to that question, he quickly asks another, Did you confront him? Sure I did. I asked Rach to come with me. We went to his room, and I told him that I thought the whole thing was stupid. I told him that our last encounter in his office constituted harassment. I also pointed out that there were other people in the section who cut class just as much as I did, and he didn't fail them. He denied that he ever came on to me. And regarding the grade, he said that he was just executing university attendance policy. He also implied that I would be in big trouble if I spread my story around. Eric is pissed off. He actually looks more pissed off than I ever was. Eric, calm down, I say. But looking at him, I know I'm wasting my words. But ang yabang niya? Does he have a frat? Is he the brother of a senator or something? What does it matter, I say. You're right. It doesn't matter, he says. I mean, he's not gonna know who or what hit him anyway. That's not what I meant, I reply. Look, it's in the Bible. If you have a grievance against someone, the first thing you do is talk to him. Then if he doesn't listen, you bring a friend and you try to talk to him again. And then, after all else has failed, you have to go ahead and smite him. You know, beat the shit out of him. I know what smite means, thank you. And just where in the Bible did you read that? I think it's in Matthew. I'm pretty sure that's what it says. I find that really hard to believe, Eric. Look, he says. And for the first time, he frightens me. I'm looking into his eyes, and I realize that Eric, sort of goofy Eric, my old high school friend, is perfectly capable of premeditated violence. Look, we have to do something. He can't get away with this. Eric, I swear to God, if I pick up the collegian next week and find out he's the lead story, I will never talk to you again. He has nothing to say in response. He just sits there, his fists clenched in silence. Finally, he mutters, he just shouldn't get away with it. I suddenly feel very tired. Eric stands up. Guess I should. He makes some vague hand motion in the general direction of the door, but otherwise he doesn't move. I look at his eyes. They're glistening. He puts his hand over them, as if to stop them from leaking. I get up, walk over to him, and put my arms around him in a reassuring hug. The last time I hugged Eric was our graduation day right after the last ceremony, when everyone was laughing, cheering, throwing their programs in the air because we didn't have those silly four-cornered caps. That was a good day.
here, now. His arms wrap around me and they start to squeeze just a little too tightly. He opens his wet eyes, looks at me, and his head ducks down and his mouth meets mine, and I can feel his tongue work its way between my lips. I push him away with all the strength that suddenly surges into me. He staggers, and for a second, he looks like he's going to fall, but he manages to plant his hand on the table for support. I'm sorry, he says, straightening up abruptly. He just stands there, looking utterly lost, frozen for a moment, and then he almost trips over his own feet as he turns around and lunges for the door. He swings it open, and just like that, before I can say anything, before I can yell at him or offer him an umbrella to borrow, he's outside, running towards his car, getting drenched. I watch as he fumbles with his keys. Finally, he manages to get in and start the engine. His headlights blink on and he honks the car horn a couple of times. I make a small waving gesture, but I'm not sure if he can see me through this downpour. I close the door and sit down at my kitchen table. I pick up a screw-top plastic container. It's full of this iced tea powdered mix. I shovel a couple of tablespoons of the stuff into a glass, pour water into it, and stir the whole thing vigorously until I can no longer see the individual grains swirling around until all that's left is a homogeneous dark brown liquid. I take a swig. Out of the corner of my eye, I see Ludlum as he zips across the kitchen sink's edge. There are times when I wish rats could talk. Hell... There are times when I wish dogs could talk, and cats, and all sorts of animals, and inanimate objects, too. I could have conversations with my books, and ask my clothes which of them wants to go out today. I could go to our old school, run my hand across the pebbly surface of the humanities building's walls, and thank my favorite Nara tree the one near the girl's dorm, for pleasant, oblivious afternoons spent in its shade. I gulp down the last of my instant too-sweet tea and smack my lips. There's an unpleasant puckery aftertaste. I set the glass down on my table and shuffle over to my bed. The springs creak as I lie down. I take a deep breath, close my eyes. I can hear another argument starting next door. I can hear the scratching and the scrabbling of my two rodent roommates as they cavort inside the hollow wooden wall to my left. And outside, there's the constant roar of the rain, as if the sky itself is laughing at some great joke that I just don't get. You've just listened to Kara's Place, written by Louise Ketigbak. Narrated by Christine Lau. Luis has won a lot of awards for his writing, including Palanca and Philippine Graphic Awards. He has two books out so far. His short story collection, Happy Endings, from the UP Press. And a book of essays called The King of Nothing to Do, from Mill Flores Publishing. He co-founded Burn Magazine and was the founding editor-in-chief of the online music magazine, Pulse.ph. 
He is currently a contributing editor for Imagine Magazine and the editor-at-large for Uno Magazine, one of my favorite magazines, should I say, and writes a weekly column for the Manila Bulletin. Christine Lau, our narrator for this episode, received the Ateneo de Manila University's Dean's Award for Poetry and the Essay. She worked as a columnist, staff writer, and copy editor for an international broadsheet, then shifted to the fields of corporate law and development. Her latest fiction piece appears in the recent Philippine Speculative Fiction Volume 6, which I must tell you is already sold out, but I heard from the publisher that they already are on second printing, so watch out for that. And as promised, here's Tin and myself talking about Kara's Place. Hi, Tin. Hi, Elise. How are you? <laughs> well, thank you for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so we finished uh, finished um, recording the story, Kara's Place. Yes, yes. By Louise Katigbak. Beautiful story, don't you think? Uh, yes, I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> An inspired choice. Uh, um, yeah. But you, you were telling me a while ago, it was, it was a very young piece. Yes, I thought it was very young. Uh, well, obviously, the characters are very young. Uh-oh. They seem to be second-year college students. You're wondering at what age Luis must have been when he wrote the story. Yes, wondering about that as well. Um, and he was already writing at that age, huh? but what was I doing at that age? Yeah, probably scouting boys. Well, well I'm talking <laughs> So, I know. <laughs> scouting voice, Mr. Leland. Hello. Hi, I love you, my husband. <laughs> I know. Pero, um, what did you, what did you like about the story, or what did you find interesting about this? Well, obviously, there's a lot of tension in the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, tension that's not apparent from the first few paragraphs, oh, yeah. which is about Uh-oh. rats, and which, mm-hmm. incidentally, is my daughter's favorite part of the story. You were story. reading the story to your daughter last night? Yes, all, all the way until the scene. Yeah, good <laughs> and, then, and then I stopped reading it when I... The kissing, the kissing scene. Yes, the kissing uh, scene. Uh, yeah. Sinta, you're not listening to this. <laughs> so not listening to this. But um, um, yeah, I, I like the fact that the way the... Well, Kara was portrayed was she mm. was um, someone who was confused, which mm. we usually are at that age. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Uh, someone who liked someone, did not like the idea of love for whatever reason, had you know, issues about sexuality. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that it portrays a girl on the verge of being a woman, not yet woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but were you actually, and this is, this is uh, being fair to the story. Were you were you convinced that she was a girl when when you were reading it? Um, with the language, a lot of the language was was pretty male. I thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I understand that there may be girls who there could would, be girls, yeah. would name rats Ludlum and yeah. Le <laughs> Name rats at all. I wouldn't even name my sister anything. No, I, I, just, I just go screaming when I see yeah. one of them. Rat! Kill rat now! Kill Ludlum! Kill Ludlum! It's my husband who reads uh, Ludlum and Le Carre. Oh, she no, must no, be a very she must be a very tough girl because yeah, from her from her choice of um, fiction that mm-hmm. she reads all the way to her not saying yes to the professor in the end mm. makes up for her being tough, I guess. So but, yeah, but don't you think this is also about the boy uh, in the story? Mm-hmm. I, I thought that a lot of it was uh, well, a whole lot of the story is about the boy as well. Mm-hmm. 
anyway. Trying to connect with her. Trying to connect Literally. with her. Literally. <laughs> yeah, in, in any be. way possible. Uh-huh. And the girl saying no. Uh-huh. So I actually wonder, Luis Katigba, mm-hmm. what's the story behind the story? Yes, Luis. <laughs> what is the story behind the story? I would probably email you in a few days and ask where yeah. this came from. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting story. And you know, I, I'm startled by the honesty. Sobrang, ano ba? It's napaka-raw ng emotion. Yeah, I, I would say that the piece struck me as a very raw sort of piece of work. As opposed to something, you know, overly crafted. Uh-oh. But this one was very honest. It made me suspect that eh, it was from experience. Although that's really not <laughs> the point. I don't think of the this discussion. is fair now. <laughs> this is fair. Okay, scrap that. <laughs> okay, okay. But so. um, yeah, it made me go back oh. to my days in college. Oh, Matt Seventeen. Oh my God, Matt Seventeen, right? <laughs> we love Matt Seventeen. No, you love Matt Seventeen. I didn't have Matt Seventeen. <laughs> I, I, I was in one of those courses without Matt. So okay, which <laughs> courses don't have Matt Seventeen? Mm, yeah, yeah, that's why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but at that age, no, someone to write so honestly mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. perfectly. I think this one won, won an award. Did I it? Think, I think, I think. I'll have to check. Ah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and, and, you know, if we're, we're going about what we liked about the piece, what I liked about it was the contrast between, you know, the ugliness of her surroundings, yeah. which mm-hmm. is probably how she felt about herself, mm-hmm. and the beauty that mm-hmm. she felt when she was with this guy, which she was mm-hmm. trying to push away as mm-hmm. well. Because she mm-hmm. wasn't comfortable with, you know, mm-hmm. the implications of mm-hmm. what that beauty meant. Yeah. And the fact that it was just really in one place. The story happened just in one place. Ah, absolutely. And then they were just um, enriching the moment by citing memories. It, may, it, it gave us an idea of who these characters were. Yeah. So it was really Yeah, I, I'd, like, I'd like to meet the real life uh, Kara. <laughs> so, hello, Luis Katigbak. Where are you? Hello. <laughs> I know I'm a stranger to you, but <laughs> we know you so well. <laughs> okay, that was that was our short banter. <laughs> and um, thank you, Tin, for reading the story oh, for us. You did a great you. job. Thank and... you for directing me. I needed a lot of direction. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This is Anis Ponsalan for Pakinggan Pilipinas. See you again next month, ating kwento, pakinggan mo. For more audio fiction stories by Filipino writers, go to pakingganpilipinas.blogspot.com.